Hi, this is Pastor Ryan Spooner. We'll get to the recording of this Sunday's message in just a moment, but first I want to ask, are you a listener who does not attend in person on Sundays, but who would be interested in meeting with other St. Paul's listeners in your area for a small group? Right now we have a couple people connected to St. Paul's who live in the New Haven shoreline area who would like to start an in-person small group you know, to meet for fellowship and discussion of the previous week's message. And so if you happen to be from the New Haven shoreline area and you would be interested in that, please email me to let me know. Ryan at stpaulswired.org. That's stpaulswired.org. And if you're not in that area, but you're in another area and you'd be interested in meeting with other listeners there, Email me to let me know what area you're from, and maybe we can put something together. In fact, even if you're not interested in a small group, but you're just a regular listener who doesn't attend in person, we'd love to hear from you just to know that you're out there, because uh, we don't really know how many people listen to this. So if you're willing, we'd love to hear from you. And as always, we'd love to have you join us on a Sunday morning. We meet at 10.30 a.m. at the Millworks in Willington, Connecticut, 156 River Road. Also, if you'd ever like to support our church financially, we would be extremely grateful. You can donate through our website, stpaulschurchct.org. Well, as I mentioned during announcements, we are uh, joined this morning by Andrew, Andrew Ober, if you don't mind coming up at this time. And he's the Associate Regional Director for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship Ministry, which is a uh, campus ministry that um, serves all, all the whole country, right, around the world. And uh, he is the Associate Regional Director for the New England uh, chapter, which is three, three to top north states, Maine, Vermont, New Hampshire, and parts of Massachusetts. He uh, was the past, formerly the pastor at High Rock in Boston, if anyone's uh, familiar with that church. And um, he has four kids, all under the age of 13, and he's been married for 15 years. So uh, he drove over an hour to get here from Rhode Island this morning, and when I heard that he drove by himself, I asked if he needed an escort back, because <laughs> I know what it's like to have three kids all under the age of 13. So thank you for joining us this morning. I am glad to be here, and Pastor Keith said, wow, that's, that's a hike, and I said, yeah, it's nice, so, so nice and quiet, <laughs> peaceful, time to think, no traffic, so yeah, I'm really glad to be here this morning, it's really great to get to meet some of you, and uh, thank you for the invitation. Um, so, uh, this morning I wanted to preach from Luke chapter 2, and I want to talk about uh, the title is The Fruit of a Faithful Life, and it actually goes very well with that Walter Brueggemann prayer from earlier, um, and I, I think it fits well, so it's neat to see the Lord setting those things up. So before we start, let me pray, and then I'm going to read the scripture. Gracious God, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your word. Uh, we pray uh, that it would illumine the path in front of us. and pray that you would give us the ears to hear the things that you want to say, through the scripture. And would you work through the words that you have given me and the words that Luke wrote down um, so many generations ago. Would you be glorified in all this? We pray these things in your name. Amen. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 22. This is from the NIV. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, 
Joseph and Mary took him, that is Jesus, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and, and praising God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Israel. I really like journey stories. When I told my wife I was going to talk about this uh, during the sermon, she kind of groaned, but I only preached you once and maybe <laughs> quite a while, so uh, sometimes I use too many Lord of the Rings uh, references because I really like Tolkien, but anyway. Um, but Lord of the Rings, obviously it's a story about a journey, as all are a lot of great epics, a lot of fantasy stories, even a lot of nonfiction that I've read. It's all about the journey and what happens to the hero or the individual as they are walking through their journey. All the little things that happen along the way, and frankly, the fruit of it. So certainly in The Lord of the Rings, it's Frodo, the hobbit who is on this journey to destroy the ring in, in Mount Doom, and there are so many things that happen along the way that serve to refine his character and that lead him to the person, the hobbit, that he is at the very end when he sails off into the West. Faith is a journey. And in a similar way, it's, it's not just kind of get in your car, go from point A to point B. But there are so many things. Is this not picking up on? Yeah, it's uh, being weird. Okay. Do you mind holding that? No. Okay, so I said Lord of the Rings, Frodo, Hobbit, Journey, things happen along the way. That's all you need. Great. Um, so, wonderful. And in a similar way, um, our faith, the life of faith is a journey where we are refined along the way, where things happen. It's not just merely us getting to the end point, but God has things that refine us um, as we're on that journey. I work with college students. College students, by nature of where they are in life, are asking this question, what's next? What internship will I get? What... Um, what major will I have? 
what job should I be thinking about? Will this person that I'm dating potentially become my spouse? It reminds me of a quote from one of my favorite movies that many of you will know. All his life, he has looked away to the future, the horizon, never his mind on where he was. Anybody know who said that? That's Yoda, talking about Luke from Star Wars. That Luke is always looking the, to the horizon, never focused on where he is. I, sh- I could have done the voice, but I don't know you that well, so I won't say it. Um, we live in a future-oriented society. Now, anthropologists designate societies, and some one category is how they're oriented toward where they're coming from or towards sort of where they're going. Um, one scholar said this, future-oriented societies have a great deal of optimism about the future. They think they understand it and can shape it through their actions. So much of the news I come across has to do with the future. Predictions of various kinds, uh, from uh, how many wins the Patriots will have once the schedule comes out, right, uh, to who will run in elections in the next few years or who will win elections. We love polls. I pay attention to politics. And so much of it is just trying to divine what's going to happen in the future to the weather, right? We get, have the 10-day forecast. Then we have like the 30-day forecast. I don't know how reliable that is, but our society prizes looking ahead to what's next. As Christians in this society, we can often fall into this focus on the future mentality. And there's, of course, nothing wrong with that. We, we should await heaven, which is our ultimate future. We should look toward Jesus' renewal of the world and pray as we see in Revelation, come Lord Jesus. We should ask God to guide us as we're making decisions about the future. But sometimes, to the detriment of our present relationships, we have this focus on the future. I've been challenged by what Peter writes uh, in 1 Peter chapter 1, 8-9. He says this, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you you do not even see him now, you believe and trust in him. And you greatly rejoice and delight with inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You are receiving. Not, you know, just wait a little while and you'll finally get there and you'll receive it. But even in the here and now, we are receiving the end result of our faith. The emphasis in these verses uh, is on what we are receiving in the present. This morning, I want to think a little bit more about that. What it means to kind of live our faith in the present with God. As, yes, we await what God's going to do. We intercede for our country and our world, for what we long for God to do. But where we are in those moments as we take this journey. And I'm going to look at these two people, these two saints in this passage, Simeon and Anna. Simeon, who's a priest, and Anna, who is a prophet, both serving in the temple in Jerusalem. These two figures uh, serve literally and symbolically in this story, and they demonstrate uh, something significant both in their time and for us. They demonstrate how God invites us to relate to him in this great story of redemption. And they demonstrate how two, two holy Christian dispositions, one of anticipating God's activity in the future and one of appreciating God's presence in the here and now. So anticipating God in the future and then appreciating God in 
the here and now. I want you to take a, a minute and we're going to imagine what expectations we're building to this. Isaiah, 700 years before this time, wrote these words. Those the Lord has rescued will return. This is a prophecy, a prediction. They will enter Zion, that's Jerusalem, with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Now, God's people at this time had been meditating on these words. Not just, you know, for 20 years or 30 years or 100 years or 500 years, but for 700 years they've been waiting for their return to Zion and in other parts of Isaiah, for the Lord's return to Zion, for the Lord to comfort his people, for the Lord to redeem his people, all promises from, from just the book of Isaiah, and for the ends of the earth to see the salvation of God. 700 years. Let's just think. 700 years ago in our world, what, what was happening? This is the 14th century. Europe is in the midst of the Middle Ages. The Renaissance in Italy had not happened, nor had Columbus sailed to the Americas. The great Ottoman Empire was founded in Turkey. It, it was the beginning of the Ming Dynasty in China. And the Inca were on the rise, but not yet in power in South America. And I could go on and on and on about how our world was different 700 years ago. It's hard for me to imagine a people waiting 700 years for something. And this is the moment that Simeon and Anna enter the story. They serve as representatives of God's faithful people in their reaction to Jesus. God's people that had been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. We're told that Simeon, uh, who was likely a priest, had been waiting for the consolation of Israel. Uh, traditionally, Simeon is thought of as an old man, but it's not necessarily true. What Luke emphasizes is that Simeon had been promised by God that he would see the one, the Messiah, who was to come before his death. Imagine what that life would have been like. People have been waiting for 700 years, and I'm going to get to see it. Now, we also have Anna. And we know that Anna is an elderly woman. She probably got married around 13 and was married for seven years. This means that she would have been waiting in the temple in Jerusalem for 60-ish years, fasting and praying and speaking to people for 60 years, which is kind of over two of the average lifespans um, in, in that time where people lived about you know, 30 years. These two should serve as reminders that sometimes we need to wait. Sometimes for a very long time to see God move and fulfill God's promises. And that God invites us to faithful waiting. I think there is a way that we can relate to Simeon and Anna. Like them, we, we are often focused on and expecting God's future activity. And as I was saying at the beginning, our relationships with God are, are often concerned around with what we want to see God do for us what we want to see God do for our loved ones, what we got, want to see God do in the world. My work really focuses around the cycle of the semester. You only get maybe four years to connect with a college student. So there is a sense of urgency. How is God going to act? What are we going to do next? 
it can be hard to sit in the moment and wait. And in this way, our relationship with God points frequently to the future and sometimes to things that, that we want and the future outcomes that we want to see in our lives and in our world. And in many ways, this is rightly so. But we have to be careful not to get the balance of these things and miss where God is in the present. This is hard for me. I find myself looking ahead and focusing on God showing up in my future and what God wants to do. I remember, uh, so I actually lived in Connecticut, two stints in Connecticut, one as a student at Connecticut College, not too far away, and one as an university staff in, in Bridgeport. And as I was thinking about my future in, in Bridgeport, I remember talking to a colleague and I asked him this question. I said, Scott, how often do you ask this question of yourself? Like, what's next? What am I going to do next year? And he laughed at me. <laughs> he laughed at me because it was kind of a knowing laugh. It's a question that he is always asking. And I realized, and I realized at that time that that's a pattern that I can get into. What's next? Where is God taking me? What's going to happen next year? All those things. But Simeon and Anna show us a little bit of a different way. They show us anticipating and abiding with Jesus in the here and now. Mary and Joseph are also in the story. They were doing things that the law required them to do as they brought Jesus to the temple. If you've ever had a child and needed to you know, get a birth certificate or register them for school or get a social security card or take a baby to the many doctor visits that happen in the first few months, you know this sort of requirement. This would have been routine for them. This is what, just what you did when a child was born. The mother would offer sacrifices for her ritual purification following childhood. And the parents would symbolically redeem. It's sort of like buying the child back, um, their firstborn son. Likely, there were other couples engaged in, in similar business in the temple. Like you go to the records office to get the birth certificate. Other people were there doing that too. Mary and Joseph, though, were definitely not expecting a spectacle. I mean... If you're going to walk into City Hall to get a birth certificate, you're not expecting somebody is going to be there. It's going to say something amazing like, with your baby. Now, to say this is probably a little bit deeper than just you know, going to the registrar's office. But nevertheless, it, it's a, an analog. And just think of what that would have been like. They're expecting to go and do their own business. They enter the temple. They walk up to its eastern gate. This is a place where people are purified. Other people are bringing animals. It's loud. It's smelly. It's dusty. People are bringing animals to this giant building. It's filled with worshipers, with prayer, with priests, with incense. All these things are going on. But what happens next is entirely unexpected. As Mary and Joseph have been traveling to Jerusalem, somewhere Simeon is in prayer. And the Holy Spirit tells him to go to the temple. Simeon walks into the temple and then he spots this couple, which is probably an average looking couple in this sea of people doing their sacrifices and their regular business. And he approaches them because somehow God has said, this is the one. And he must be so thrilled. 700 years of waiting, however many, many maybe decades of waiting Simeon has for this promise to come through, to come to fruition. He takes this baby in his arms, which must have been strange. They're not expecting a priest to come up and grab their child. He then praises God right then and there, saying, in short, I can die now. I can die a happy man. 
Because I have seen, God, what you promised 700 years ago fulfilled. Simeon recognizes that the waiting God's people have done for seven centuries has not been in vain. Mary and Joseph are probably still astounded by these words, and they're still trying to figure out what is going on, what's the significance. Simeon says this thing about a sword piercing Mary's soul, too. Like, I'm sure she had some questions about that. But then Anna comes up to Mary and Joseph. She also praises God and gives what we could say is the first sermon about Jesus. A prophet in the New Testament is a word that indicates that Anna would have sort of been preaching to people and teaching at, at the temple. Anna has been preparing for 60 years for this moment. Now these events likely caused a bit of a commotion. Here you have Simeon, a priest, and Anna, a prophet, who had been in the temple probably longer than most people in Jerusalem have been alive. Like People went to the temple regularly. These would be folks that they maybe had seen um, at the temple. And all of a sudden, they are saying that God's promises were finally coming true in this baby. These weren't people they could easily dismiss, like the shepherds or the Galilean parents. This was a priest and a prophet speaking. Both are literally and symbolically important in this idea of anticipating God in the future and experiencing Jesus in the here and now. Simeon symbolizes Israel pointing ahead to the baby. All of their history from Genesis to Malachi and beyond was coming fulfilled in this baby waiting for seven centuries for this one. And Anna symbolizes those who come after and follow Jesus who point back to this beginning, right? The words in the year of our Lord. The first evangelist telling all who are waiting for God's redemption that it has finally come. In the same way evangelists today do, do something similar pointing back to Jesus' death and resurrection. What might these two teach us about the fruit of a faithful journey? Because certainly they have been journeying faithfully with God, being present with God and anticipating God's uh, activity in the future. Imagine Simeon, and Simeon's faithful journey has been serving God in the temple. God speaking to him in, in, in his prayer, in a dream, or maybe hearing a voice, sensing that God said this. Simeon's regular discipline of being with God and doing his work in the temple led to this moment. You know, we may more frequently focus on this picture of the Christian life, one where we kind of hear from God and expect God to act, one where we're regularly discerning where God might be leading us, the Simeon kind of pointing to the future, and that's great. That's perfectly good. That sort of future orientation that we've been talking about. But sometimes I think we miss the journey in the process. The Frodo is looking toward Mount Doom, but... <laughs> He's missing God in the in the in-between. We're missing kind of the points in the journey in the in-between. Or like us, we get in the car and we're expecting, okay, I know that I'm going to drive from Rhode Island to, to Connecticut. I'm waiting for the journey. I'm not really thinking about what happens in the in-between. And we fail and we miss God who is with us. You know, I struggle with stopping and not being with God. I, I've lived all over kind of the 95 quarter I grew up in Rhode Island. I went to school in Connecticut. I went to school in Boston, moved back to Connecticut, moved back to Boston, moved back to Rhode Island. So I'm like, you know, kind of bopping around, always thinking about what's next, always looking to the horizon. So what might we learn from Anna, which I think is the more difficult thing for us to grasp? Unlike Simeon, we know that, that Anna is older. And maybe 
we know people like this, or maybe we are someone like this. People who commit their lives to pursuing God. People who, who never miss a prayer meeting or a Bible study. Anna has spent a lifetime worshiping God every moment she can. And in this time, we see the fruit of that life, that faithful life. It doesn't seem like Anna has had any promise waiting for God, unlike Simeon. Anna is simply doing what she does every day during the week, just going and worshiping God in the temple. Yet this lifetime of service has prepared Anna for something. Anna knew God and the scriptures so well that she was ready for this very moment. She had a teaching all ready to deliver to the people around her. She knew it because she'd been with God. This is the fruit of a faithful life. A deep knowledge and intimacy with Jesus. A deep love for him, knowing his deep love for us. Often our, our pictures of God can, can focus on, on us and ourselves and what we are asking for, what we need. And those aren't entirely wrong. God wants to be with you. God wants to answer your prayers. But sometimes we can miss that God is with us even as we're praying. There's a lot of times that I used to pray, kind of, Holy Spirit, would you come? And, and I, I know what that means, and sometimes I still pray that. But my prayer has shifted in recent years to asking, Spirit, would you make me aware of where you are right now? What you are doing in my life? What you want to do kind of in this, in this space? One of my favorite books um, is this book called With by an author named Sky Jathani. Um, and this book has transformed my life and my understanding of what it means to live with God. And the title gives it all away. It's being with God. But I'm going to walk through a little bit of what Jathani says. Because I think it's a helpful um, encouragement for us um, in how we think about our relationships with God. Jathani gives four different misunderstandings, four different ways that we miss God who is with us in the here and now. He writes that each of the different ways that we relate to God are represented by four positions. Um, life for, from, over, and the fourth one is the one he's recommending. Thus the name, with God. For, from, over, and with. I want to outline these four uh, to, to close this out today as I think they help us to diagnose the ways that we can often miss God. And what is a better way of the God who is always with us to the end of the age? The first one is some of us live our lives for God. We believe that the center of what it means to follow Jesus is to do things for him. Maybe it's serving the poor or sharing our faith, giving generously, using our talents. And, and these aren't bad things. And each of these first three, the idea is they get disordered when this becomes our kind of primary or maybe only way of relating to God. Those of us who are in this category, fall into this, see ourselves as doing things for God. Jathani says, the significant life we believe is the one expended, expended accomplishing great things in God's service. What does it mean to follow Jesus? To do things for him. And so the life of faith is centered on how we might do things for God. I relate to this. I think in much of my Christian life uh, that I can think, what does it mean to follow God? Okay, God, what do you want me to do now? For others of us, the second is living life from God. God becomes like a vending machine. We put in money of like being good and, and doing right. And we get out the immediate rewards of 
maybe money and blessing and, and whatever we're expecting from God. We draw our life from God. Those in this category, he says, want God's blessings and gifts, but they are not particularly interested in God himself. The Christian life here, if we emphasize this entirely, can become reduced to trying to sort of manipulate God in order to get what we want. I know I've prayed this sort of prayer. Like, God, if you help me, I don't know, get this job, I'll promise I'll be nicer to my kids. Or maybe it's the other way around. I'll be really, really good. And then, God, I th- will you do this? I've been so good, you know. Um, and if we're focusing on that, we can often miss God who is with us in the struggles and the prayers that aren't answered um, and the needs that we have. So that's life from God. Another temptation is to live life over God. God provides us with key you know, kind of principles for success that we can use in our daily lives. You can find many books out there. There used to be more Christian bookstores. I don't know if you have one around here, but um, that there are Christian bookstores, and you know, there's like the Daniel Daniel Diet. There are all, all sort of things that people will point to the Bible and say, like, this these these principles that we can get are from the Bible. And so the Bible becomes kind of a repository for principles that we get for our lives. Now, certainly the Bible has important guidance for all aspects of our lives. But to focus on this category entirely, we can abandon God in favor of looking for formulas and sort of controllable outcomes. That's life over God. And the fourth of the ways that we miss God are living our lives under God. I think I misspoke a minute ago. There are four ways that we miss God. God provides rules that we need to follow in order to be good and obedient people. So we can scan the Bible for a description of how to be good and the person God wants us to be. This is the more legalistic way. The author says, the life under God posture sees God in simple cause and effect terms. We obey his commands and he blesses us or our family or maybe our nation. Our primary role is determined to what our primary role is to determine what he approves of or disapproves of and work vigilantly to remain within those boundaries. Now, often rules are established for good reasons. You know, maybe somebody was convicted by God to give up a certain behavior, like drinking. But they can quickly, if overemphasized, devolve into legalism that misses the point. I think legalism can come from seeds that were in a good place. Uh, When people's lives have been changed and they decided not to do certain things, but then they can become rules. Um, and we can live our lives in this way over God. So the, the, the four ways that he outlines are living this life that comes from God, where God, it's kind of an arrangement we have between God, kind of sort of like this vending machine, for God, where it's all what God wants us to do, over God, we're just looking for principles, or under God, where we're kind of falling into a legalism to justify ourselves. Each of these contain a grain of truth but each miss the main point of our faith. These are ways, sometimes, of trying to get a more controllable relationship with God, maybe one that feels more predictable. They expect God to do something for us and give us something, but they they miss the God who is with us. Sometimes, the principles that we get from the Bible don't lead to the kind of worldly success that we want. It's hard sometimes 
to be honest, to, to act with integrity if your boss wants you to do something that maybe doesn't have a lot of integrity. When we do something for God and the good things don't come out of that vending machine or, or when we're living our lives for God and it doesn't pan out, the ministry fails or whatever it may be. You know, I, I have said before, I find myself tempted by this idea of living life for God, thinking, what does God want me to do? And I notice that I miss God who is with me. As I'm out doing mission, uh, missions work as a campus missionary and things go well, I get really excited. I'm like, God, this is what you wanted me to do for you. But that joy can be like a little bit like a sugar high. But it doesn't last super long. Because I've missed the God who is there, who just who wants to be with me, certainly wants to do thing, me to do things and bless me in different ways, but primarily wants to bless me with his presence. The journey of our Christian lives is not just about where we're going or what we're stopping at next. It's about the fact that we go with Jesus now and forever. When we live a life with God, God becomes more like a friend walking with us on our journey and less like the map that tells us where to go or the destination or even the road that we travel on, like a companion for us, walking with us. We anticipate heaven and ask for guidance when we make decisions, for sure, but the fruit of a faithful life is an awareness of God's presence with us in the here and now. There's this famous saying from something called the Westminster Shorter Catechism that I think sums this up well. The chief end of people is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. What a beautiful picture. The goal of our lives is not producing something for God or living by the rules or getting ahead in the world. It's the enjoyment of God, the appreciation of God's presence that doesn't require us to be able to perform something. God doesn't need us. God just wants to be with us. With us. Lately, I've been trying just to sit more with the Lord in my devotions, to be less concerned, though I do have a lot of questions about, I've got four kids. I've got a lot of questions about what's next for a lot of different people. <laughs> the challenge is being able to sit with God in those questions in that time, knowing that God will provide, and I do pray, and I do work, and I do follow, and I do look for all these things. But primarily what God gives us is God's presence. And that's my encouragement for you this week. Uh, I, was, I was saying uh, that to Pastor Ryan that, that this sermon kind of works in lots of different seasons. Seasons that are really busy when you need to be reminded to slow down and be with God, and seasons where hopefully we have a little bit more space, hopefully in the summer. When we can sit down, we can rest, we can remember, we can enter into the discipline of God being with us. God who in Jesus says, surely I will be with you until the end of the age. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you for your goodness. I thank you that you didn't stay far off, but you came. You became flesh and you dwelt among us and that you were still present with us by the power and the presence of your spirit. We thank you for that blessing. Just pray that you would help us to open our eyes and our ears and our hearts 
to receive you. And in those times that we are weak, we can't, don't, can't seem to find you, I pray that you would help this community to be with one another in reminding one another that you are with us. We thank you that you are here. We pray these things in your name. Amen.